Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, uh, listeners, uh, uh, another exciting podcast episode, of course, because all of our podcast episodes are exciting. Yes, uh, even the boring partic- ones. <laughs> Particularly, uh, we have uh, joining us once again, uh, 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 Eric Johnson uh, from the uh, VCU Libraries. Um, and uh, Eric is uh, uh, with us today to discuss the Smithsonian, okay, um, which um, for um, uh, geeks like me and I, um, it, it ranks right up there, does it not, Nia, with some of our, you know, most favorite institutions, like, in the world, Oh, right? yeah, because the Smithsonian, in my mind, the Smithsonian and the Louvre and the British Museum, right, like, that's, those are just world-class institutions. And so when everybody says in the world, America's a bit backwards, we can say Smithsonian really quickly <laughs> to try to sort of counteract the backwardsness thing. Eric, is that how you perceive it? <laughs> I mean, what I was almost gonna jump in and say is, not only is it great, but it's free compared to your stupid Louvre. <laughs> yeah, That's true, right? with your with your pyramid pretend thing and your Tom Hanks movies. So, um, and yet, and for me, since I like, you know, titles and labels and catchy phrases, right? Um, the Smithsonian, right? The nation's attic. Okay. You know, it's a great. Okay. Nobody would ever call the Louvre France's attic. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like they just wouldn't. Right. Okay. And, and as we get into this discussion, um, Eric is going to talk to us about the castle, right? I mean, there are parts of the Smithsonian, okay, that you're just like, wow, right? I mean, you could go ahead and like do an entire movie. Okay, yeah, Tom Hanks, okay, you know, <laughs> you know the Louvre. Okay, let's go ahead and spend a little quality time, okay, doing a movie, okay, uh, um, with the Smithsonian. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Eric, um, uh, 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 like with uh, our discussion with you about the national parks, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, I'm fascinated by uh, your interest in the Smithsonian. Um, so if you could uh, start off the episode by uh, talking with us about uh, your interest in uh, uh, what got you uh, excited about the Smithsonian. Um, actually, it sort of starts off like I did the National Park one, which is, again, growing up in Northern Virginia, it was way easy, like the Smithsonian's were our sort of like local museum, you know, all school trips practically felt like they were going to the Smithsonian in some fashion, you know, one museum or another, depending on the nature of the class or that kind of thing, back when schools used to have school trips, which, of course, is now no longer the case, unfortunately, in so many ways, but, um, and also, my dad worked for the Metro system. He was an electrical engineer for the Metro system. And so we would go downtown, you know, pretty regularly, you know, take the bus to the subway and the subway down downtown and go to the mall and, and visit stuff. And, um, and so I really grew up 
hitting a bunch of different museums just over time. I had a real interest in natural history, so it was easy to go to the Natural History Museum there. Um, and so my first, like, you know, that was my childhood, but then also my first summer job, because I had had such a great experience visiting Smithsonian stuff, was at the National Zoo. Um, that I worked at the zoo my basically last two summers of high school and first two summers of college. My very first jobs were selling ice cream out of ice cream stands at the zoo. Um, so <laughs> including one to Jay Schrader, former quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Oh, hey. yes, yeah. That was very exciting. He's a very big man compared to my little <laughs> high school self. Um, and <laughs> so, so, you know, it was like two summers, second summer boiling up on, it was one of those summers where there were multiple hundred degree days and, you know, up at the top entrance of the zoo, huge blacktop area, me in a little stand, you know, selling out the ice cream and then drinks and that sort of thing. Uh, but then the second two summers I was there, I was in the education department. Um, so I got to work at the information desks. So doing the, the fun thing of, you know, answering questions as people came in or like I did the elephant cart, the elephant information cart by the elephant exhibit and, and in the elephant house where we had models or you know casts of elephant poop that we would like hold up to show people to talk about elephant diet and that sort of thing so <laughs> how big okay. is that okay we gotta stop right there okay that's a first for our podcast okay a reference to elephant poop and an okay. expert well, in elephant poop well done eric okay. yes i am here for you you all. are taking us to august <laughs> heights okay <That's> right. <laughs> how big is an elephant poop well i mean the piece that we showed you know which was cast i mean what i love is like the company that has to mold these and paint them like ah. good on them <laughs> but you know it's i don't know it's probably eight inches by five or six inches kind of okay cylindrical-ish kind of shape um and then we also had a piece of hide and some you know some other stuff that we were showing people what they ate all that kind of good thing um as well but um and then it's sort of my last formal experience with them was in after my junior year in college I did an internship at the American History Museum um the field to factory exhibit at American history, which is the big exhibit that was built in the late eighties about the great migration. So the, the, you know, sort of migration of Southern rural blacks to, you know, urban North, um, you know, sort of the, the, the real change in American demographic pattern. So moving from rural South to urban North, um, what they did was had this exhibit called field to factory, which was all about that. Um, and for the first time introduced the idea of kind of costumed living history in the exhibit space, which is not something the Smithsonian has traditionally ever done, right? You know, they have exhibits, you go through and you see it. But here we had like little vignettes that we worked up actually in, you know, in the exhibit space. Like we, we had to be really careful to be there, but don't like touch anything, you know, the sort <laughs> yeah. of display of a house and you know sort of like that chair is okay to touch but that one is definitely not okay to touch you know and that kind of idea um and so and we would move around the exhibit because they would have um you know something uh a sharecropper shack kind of idea in one spot and then you know at the other end of the exhibit was like a chicago train station and you know 
Eric turns into an Irish cop for this, you know, for that kind of thing. So it was really, I mean, it was a really phenomenal experience. We, you know, the, the office where we worked out of had a bunch of um, Superman props in it, just sort of sitting on shelves. And the big, the, the big cool thing was the, the original mash sign, you know, the big multi-pointing, you know, Toledo, oh, cool. you know, 7,000 miles away sign. Um, was just like was just sitting behind my desk I mean it was you know which is not to say that they were not careful about their their care but because they're moving things in and out of exhibit so quickly you know there's they they sort of have a storing you know a storage area so so that was pretty cool you so you mentioned um one of the smithsonian's but there's about 474 smithsonian's right like (laughs) it's not a it's not one right you see it's a series because uh, you've already actually you mentioned two because you mentioned a zoo and natural right. history what else is so there are or american history so yeah there are actually 19 Smithsonian sort of official smithsonian museums one zoological park so the national zoo um and then a series of basically research centers of various kinds there's a tropical research center in panama and the chesapeake bay kind of research center that they run as well, which are not, you know, sort of open to the public the same way. Um, okay. But, and we'll probably get into that more, um, this balance that the Smithsonian has between being a research institution and being a public facing, you know, sort of display institution of some nature. Um, the, um, but, but again, the 19 kind of is the count of museums about, uh, I figured out eight of them are art or art and design museums. um, And the rest are a combination of various kinds of cultural ones or um, historical uh, and and some topical ones, natural history, air and space, that kind of thing. And other than those those ones that are outside, most of them are in DC, right? Most are in DC, but not all. Uh, Like the George High um, Museum, which is part of the National Museum of American Indian is in New York. as is the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum. Um, now it's called the Design Museum. It's like Smithsonian Design Museum, something like that, Cooper Hewitt. Um, those, you know, that's in New York as well. And then, um, and then they also have a bunch of Smithsonian affiliate museums. So there's more than 200 museums around the country, which are, they sort of have partnered with the Smithsonian in a formal, we're gonna call it the, you know, we are going to formally affiliate with the Smithsonian. And so they get to use the Smithsonian logo and there's exchanges of, um, of stuff that they put on exhibit and expertise exchanges and that kind of thing. So So uh, if a a listener is listening somewhere outside of DC, they may very well be close to a museum. Affiliated with it. Yeah. With the Smithsonian. Okay. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I think the um, yeah, there's two more than 200 of those. And in almost all 50 states, also Panama and Puerto Rico. So cool. Yeah. Now, uh, Eric, um, was the Smithsonian something that uh, the the framers of the US Constitution and the the creation of this country, is this something that they had in mind or did it arise later on? Uh, basically it arose later on. That's sort of an interesting way of phrasing it. Like, did they have this in mind? Because of course, so many of the, the founders and sort of the next generation, right after so the children of the founders, quote unquote, um, were deeply interested in 
sciences, you know, mostly sciences and sort of the useful arts, as they would call it. So, you know, this yeah, idea I mean, of technology this was, development. I mean, we're talking, what, you know, three, four generations removed from the Enlightenment era, right? Right. You know, this this idea that um, as you grew in wealth and status in society, okay, you had the time. And quite obviously, because you are smart human beings, you have the mental faculties to observe nature, okay, uh, to measure, collect, make innovations, etc. So, you know, as part of that founding generation, you had individuals like, you know, Ben Franklin and others who were, uh, you know, of the philosophy you know, if you had status in society, you had a responsibility to study what was going on, because again, you're a human being. And, and, and enlightenment era thinking was the use of our mental faculties will allow us to observe and eventually control and change our environment. Exactly. Right? exactly. Jefferson with his agricultural right work okay. i mean right, trying right. to hybridize plants and figuring yeah, out crop rotations and all kinds of stuff yeah okay. you know sort of the fundamental idea of a contribution of useful knowledge right like you yeah, want yes to help the nation grow and sort of you know, become independent and of course there was still this contrast with europe like you know europe all fancy you know with their fancy museums and scientists and young America ready to rise up and, and do that. So, but, but we don't have the Smithsonian. Correct. Right. Okay. So what we do have is in, in Washington, sort of as the seat of government, almost wherever the seat of government was at any given time, there was typically a group of people who was really interested in sort of getting together to talk about science and the useful arts and these kinds of ideas. Oh, like um, a royal society sort so of. Exactly. I mean, you know, sort of a, a nascent royal society or a local version of the royal society. Um, and in DC, there are a couple of them. One of the big ones was the Columbian Institute. Um, and it was the formerly the Columbian Institute for the Promotion of Arts and Sciences. Again, this kind of idea. Um, and that was one of the big leading lights of that was also a leading light of the development of the Smithsonian was John Quincy Adams. So, you know, former at that point, former president, John Quincy Adams, now representative again from Massachusetts. <laughs> Which um, you would never do now. Yeah, I mean, Presidents now would never say, I'll just take a job being a representative in the house, in the, just in the house. That's not, it's such yeah, a I different... Mean, you know, concept because now we have presidents that do other things instead of, oh, sure, I'll be local dog catcher, whatever, it's fine with me, and I just want to serve. Yeah, no. Yeah, and so many, yeah, and so many, my, so many of my students when we talk about the founding era, okay, you know, some, you know, they'll ask questions like, well, you know, whatever happened to you know so and so who participated in the Constitutional Convention? I'm like, well, they went back home and they were governor, and they were like well, wasn't that like a step down? And I'm like, no, that's just what you did back then, right? right? If you were a member of societal elite, okay, and you didn't have to, you know, work your fingers to the bone at a farm, okay, it was expected that you would continue to serve, right? Right. You know, right. so, I mean, you know, think about John Quincy Adams, right? His father was John Adams, okay? So, you know, and he became president, John Quincy did, 
okay, in one of the most disputed elections in 1824. And when he lost his reelection against his opponent, Andrew Jackson, okay, he wasn't done with politics, right? He wasn't done with politics. He still thought he had something to give. Well, what, you know, what position was available? Well, you could run for Congress, right? <laughs> but today, no. as, as Neil Sorry. points out, you know, was Barack Obama going to go ahead and step down after being president? Okay, and, run and then for go the back to the Senate. Senate, you know, representing Illinois. Right? Yeah, he's not going to do that. I mean, yep. you know, Bush forty three paints, right? Right. Okay. And in fairness, paints pretty well. Pretty well. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. impressed with some of those portraits. His portrait of Madeleine Albright is is actually quite lovely. Um, I I know this is a lame question, but I'm going to ask you, Eric, and you may not know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Colombian named for Columbus? I assume, I don't actually know that, but that was such a common naming in the era. You know, this this idea of, you know- Or the District Colum of Columbia. Columbia, exactly. I mean, this District of Columbia, the Columbian Institute. I mean, for all I know, the Columbian is just because it was the District of Columbia, but more likely it's because that's the embodiment of the spirit of the United States kind of idea. This Columbia <laughs> was, was often held and... in this era. Yeah. adventurer and explorer and okay you know, yeah okay so. so i mean i was just clarifying it's not because of the country columbia would probably right 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 probably yes. not Apologies. that yes to okay. be clear on that so so so, so then that's in the what, early 1800s or yeah so? so that's it was sort of founded 1816 it became chartered by congress as a sort of like we recognize this as a as a real thing they got a 20-year charter from congress in 1818 um, and one of the things that, or a couple of the things they were really pushing for were things like a botanic garden and a museum of, you know, natural objects from the nascent United States, um, you know, and, and sort of North America, um, interested in all the cool countries objects. had one. So, right, exactly. I mean, so they were, <laughs> they were starting to push, for, exactly. They're starting well, to push I mean, for that it, kind it, of it, idea. And again, for listeners, remember, we're talking about the 18 teens and the 1820s, okay? The United States as a country basically existed east of the Mississippi, right? Right. So, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, the natural history of the United States of America, okay? We're not talking about the, the size and scope of the United States today, right? This was, would be a much more limited endeavor Right. Right. Modest. Okay. This would be I mean, a modest like, endeavor. Yeah, 10, modest. 15 years Thank after you. Lewis and Clark, right? I mean, this is Lewis and yes. Clark had just sort of gone west and cut. Like, so they know there's this vast west out there, but yes. they have no idea what's in it. Thomas Jefferson thought there were still mastodons out there. I mean, like, it's it's quite a kind of a, a, a an opportunity cool? to learn a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been cool, though, if there had been mastodons out there. Totally. I'm just so jumping forward into the 1830s, this is where it really gets interesting slash strange. Right. <laughs> yes. So that's a, that is a great way to phrase it because enter James Smithson into this. So hmm. Smithson. Yeah. So, so Smithson, who 
unexpectedly gave the United States a bunch of money that we had no idea what to do with. So James Smithson, a, a naturalized British subject, he was actually born in France, um, an illegitimate child of a duke and the cousin of his wife, <laughs> the duke's wife. Um, and so, so James Smithson, his original last name was Muncie, I think, as I recall. Um, and then eventually changed to Smithson sort of as, as he entered Oxford or when he was in Oxford. Um, but yeah, he was raised in France, um, very much a sort of child of enlightenment Europe in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, his, you know, his family had money, this Duke and his, his mother's family. And really he was raised by his mother and her, her family had money as well. Um, and so he went to, he ended up coming back to the UK because I mean, his parents were British and was naturalized there, went to Oxford, went to Pembroke College in Oxford um, and studied chemistry, which was like the bleeding edge of natural history work of, of science at the time. Um, and when he got through Oxford, he was sort of famous for being a pretty strong mind, pretty interested in this stuff, but not like a leading light. I mean, he was just a very solid um, kind of natural history scientist type. Uh, and of course, the tradition in the time was to go on the continental tour of Europe when you were wealthy. And he did it a little oddly in that he went to visit lots of scientists. Like he wasn't there to see royalty or royal spaces or that kind of thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also allergies. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so he, you know, started a big correspondence with, with sort of leading scientists of the, the era. Um, and eventually inherited his mother's family's money. Um, and interestingly, so in 1826, I guess he wrote his will, uh, which also the year Thomas Jefferson died. Um, but he, his original plan was to leave his money to his nephew. His brother had died. His brother had a son. He was going to leave him the money, um, had you know, made provision for like a servant of his own to get some money. And then the rest of this big inheritance was gonna to go to his, his nephew. Um, but there was a provision in his will that said, if my nephew dies and has no heir of his own, then this money will go to the United States of America to found an institution for the increase and diffusion of knowledge, you know, called the Smithsonian Institution. But so why the US? That's the mystery. It is actually really <laughs> like, you know, I looked at Had he places. been to the US? He had never been to the US. <gasps> he owned three books that referenced the United States. Like, I mean, you know, I'm sure <laughs> others did, but they weren't really, you know, and they weren't about. Okay, guys, the there's a movie States. plot there. Yeah. Okay, I think the three of us should go ahead and write it. We, to, to there's to got Hollywood to be, studio. yes, an American woman involved in this somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? That. There's epic, there's so. like there's a Wallace Simpson figure in here right. somewhere or something where he where he was like America, it's the land of milk and honey or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Re regardless of having never been here. Okay. Yeah. All so right. apparently, I mean, the sort of two leading theories. One is that he, because he was illegitimate, as they would say, um, that he was never accepted into British society the way he would have liked, right? Or into the sort of the establishment the way he wanted. So he sort of resented that and therefore okay. 
left this money to the United States. The other theory is just the sort of broad sense that of course was starting to percolate through Europe, which was that the United States was this sort of bastion of freedom and democracy. And, you know, he was really interested in, in the, you know, revolutionary France, I mean, movements in that direction. So it could be either of those things. It could be both those things. So, so he never married? He never married. Yes, he never married. Or it could be an American man. It could be that exactly. sparked his interest so, yes. in the in the oh yeah see. see I want that movie yeah see there that's that would be that's even more fabulous sir so, yeah yeah that'd be great okay but, so so he no, says so, this so, is never gonna happen because my right. nephew's not gonna right because my nephew's young me. this is not gonna happen but in yeah. case it does right I'm gonna take a wild hair and say America. It seems right. like a good place for and my That kind of seems to be the extent of it. I mean, like, that's just like the end of his will. It's not, you know, there's no. XOXO bigger... XO Smithson. <laughs> James out. So... Yeah, they, yeah, there wasn't this like huge introduction where he goes ahead and explains, okay, why he would like the United States to receive this chunk of cash, right? Exactly. And, you know, today, you know, we have all kinds of lead ins before we even like order a cup of coffee. Right, you know, oh, yeah. let me tell you why even, I want this coffee. Yeah, he didn't even <laughs> provide that, right? Yeah. Okay, so how much money are we talking about? Well, that uh, that's what's interesting. So there was a whole debate about in the first place whether we could even accept that money. Like that happened in Congress, the president, you know, because there was this whole like, you know, oh, people are just trying to buy influence in the United States. I mean, it was <gasps> that was a they're whole buying thing. clout. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, back in so, the day, buying clout. Okay. Yeah. Hey, in hey, the wait, end, wait, they wait. decided it was possible, right? Like we could receive this money. Yeah. Um, yeah because back gonna, then, like we're not okay. going to take somebody's money. Come on. Yeah. Because back then, you know, we earned money the old fashioned way. We inherited it, right? No, I mean, come on. Right? <laughs> come on. Okay. Get it from a gift. So let me, let me make sure timeline I understand this. So he makes this will, not expecting this to be a thing. His nephew dies. Right, right. Is is that is his death and his nephew's death close in proximity? Like, could he have changed the will and he just thought, eh, I'll just leave it the way it is? Yeah, they. I think his nephew lived about six years after he did. So, I what I don't really know is whether, like, I mean, did he receive that money in the meantime? I get the sense that he did, but somehow the will still encumbered the money. Like James ah. Smithson's will won out over, I guess, anything his nephew might have said. And maybe it was never, maybe he never received it. It was still actually in, um, you know, in a bank in somewhere. Trust. Yeah, in yeah. trust. Yeah. Exactly. See. It was okay. put into a trust. That's, that's exactly right. So, um, so how much money are we talking about? So, well, when we finally said, yes, we'll take it, we sent somebody over to get it. They collected it, of course, as like bags of gold coins from the UK, <laughs> brought it back to the Like US. you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right back like, again, melted as, it down as part so, of a movie plot. Okay, there would be like a half a dozen different chase scenes. Okay, groups trying to steal the money. Okay, <laughs> but it's all in carriages, like ride through the streets and yeah, people having to jump overriding. out of the way. And, oh my gosh, yes, and carriages bouncing. Oh, yeah, so, so we're talking about gold coins, gold yes. sovereigns. Yeah, 106,000 or 104,960, 104,960 gold sovereigns, which were brought here and, you know, because we're the U.S., immediately melted down and turned into coins here. 
because you know come on <laughs> so, <laughs> so how much does that amount to so that was roughly five hundred thousand dollars at the time which is a really interesting kind of thing to say because you could look at that as being two very different amounts of money that's you know kind of an immediate recalculation and you know um with um inflation all that kind of stuff to about 12 million dollars as a percentage of gdp it's like 220 million dollars so it sort of oh. depends on how you look yeah. at that amount of money yeah it's really hard to do a comparison a sort of one-to-one -one comparison to something that far back but but it, it, it was a it was a princely sum of money it was a princely sum of money and another way to look at it is harvard university which had been around for 200 years had an endowment of about $500,000 at the time that this rolled in as fresh money <laughs> bam, for a new institute, you know, for the increase and diffusion of knowledge, which of course didn't mean anything to anybody. Like, what is that? <laughs> the diffusion of knowledge. What? Okay. So, so let me, I, in this, I wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on just, just a second. Oh. Hold on just a second, Ian. What is of like all of our early presidents, the fact that the money came to the United States when Andrew Jackson was president, this just kind of sort of dawned on me. Andrew Jackson was our first quote unquote populist president. He distrusted elites. He certainly distrusted this idea that there was expert knowledge that could be developed grown, etc. Of, of like all of our early presidents to be running the country to receive this gift with the mandate of, you know, growing, you know, <laughs> our knowledge base. Oh my goodness. I bet Andrew Jackson was just like, huh? Like what? <laughs> like, Do it for why? <laughs> we want to spend a huge chunk of change about this. Okay, I just became president by basically saying that any normal American male, okay, can occupy any government position. You don't need to be smart, you don't need to be an expert, and you certainly don't need to be wealthy, okay, to do a government job. Which Thank may you. be why there was even some debate about whether you wanted to take it or not. Yeah. Right. Right. Because I don't want your stupid money with yeah. with whatever strings come attached to it. So you get a five, let's just say, let's for the sake of math, say $500,000. Okay. What I would do is take that $500,000 and I would invest it into something that would give me a percentage that I could live on. Like, this is my dream if I ever win the lottery. Right. If I ever win the lottery, I will put it into like a money market account that makes me X percentage and I will live off of that so that I can yeah. do philanthropic right. things with with the rest of the money. Yeah, because Eric, so is that how are, that Eric, you're talking to two people in the podcast who are fiscally conservative, right? right. OK, we are very, very you know conservative fiscally, right? Right. So both me and I subscribe to the, you know, the thought process that if somebody wants to go ahead and give, give us a huge, okay, bag of coins, okay? <laughs> Gold sovereigns. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and invest it in probably the safest securities and instruments, okay, 
right. and just live off the interest. Otherwise, right. exactly. leave the principal alone. Is right. that what the United States did with this? Well, basically, yes, but. <laughs> so they tried to do that. The Treasury did invest this money while Congress is trying to decide what to do. And that's where I sort of started to, to wander into was like, they didn't know what this institution was going to look like yet. We'll talk about that in a second. So while that wrangling was going on, they invested it in basically state government bonds for the state of Arkansas. So why Arkansas? I actually don't know that. I would guess because <laughs> it's available. <laughs> why United States? All yeah. of this is a crapshoot. Apparently, right. somebody right. picked up a set of dice, rolled it, and said, Arkansas, Arkansas, Arkansas looks good. That's the way to do it. So. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of, of right. the state of Arkansas. Um, they're lovely. Okay, they're lovely. but uh, of all the states at that time, okay, why them? okay they would have a robust. <laughs> municipal or state bond structure in place, Arkansas doesn't jump out at me, right? right. New right. York does. New York or Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania or Massachusetts. Connecticut. But Arkansas? But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. Is it because what they wanted to be able to do was support the development of this young state, you know? Uh, but unfortunately, it, they defaulted on, <laughs> on the bonds. Uh, and that royally pissed off if i may use that word in this podcast Please. john quincy adams who was like the protector of this money and the idea of what this money might become and so this is when you know he sort of marshaled all his political forces and convinced the ultimately convinced the government to um not only sort of back up you know back all that money replace all that money but also um you know all the interest that it would have earned as well oh, so okay. all that ended up when the smithsonian was formally founded that was part of the founding of it was this sort of agreement that we're gonna we're gonna pull all that money from the u.s treasury and sort of give it to to this new institution that this money should have gone to in the first place so now we have the institution and we have this sort of what I think of must be treated now like an endowment, right? Like, right. I'm assuming that the Smithsonian has an ongoing endowment. They don't just spend all their money every year and then they don't have any money. They, I, I'm assuming they have what Augie and I would call low level, or not low level, but like safe investments. Like they probably bought IBM. You know right. what I mean? Like <laughs> companies that don't, companies that aren't yeah. gonna really go high or like, like they're not into Bitcoin probably. Right, the Smithsonian's right. not gonna invest in crazy things, not crazy <laughs> things, adventurous things. Yeah, no cryptocurrency they're, for the Smithsonian. Right. They're, right. Gonna, they're gonna do the blue chip 500. These companies will only go under in the end times kind of yeah thing is that is that kind of how they maintain I mean, <laughs> basically it is their money going they forward. ultimately do fund themselves you know i mean they do invest this and they do run off the um you know not dipping into the principal you know they they just run themselves for a while you know doing exactly as you describe the problem, of course, has always been that that has never been enough to run the whole thing. Um, ah. But their first secretary, Joseph Henry, did sort of make that a point, you know, like this is an investment. So we will, you know, not dip into the principal. We'll just continue to, to operate. Um, but then they also had to raise money and Congress ended up giving appropriations and, and you know, 
modern Smithsonian is like 62% of the operating budget is through congressional appropriations annually. So it was a billion dollars the last the last go round. Um, okay. So with, and then with, and then the rest is made up from their investments and so their, their yeah their investments their endowment and a lot of what they call now Smithsonian Enterprises, which is you know the shops and the restaurants and the, the brand catalogs and yes. you know and all oh, that kind okay. of yeah. Well, let me ask you this with, without getting too far into the budgetary aspect. Yeah. Um, is the Smithsonian appropriations from Congress a controversial line item? It's one of those things that like is and isn't. Um, okay. It has its defenders in Congress who will support it, I think, you know, whole hog and its detractors in Congress, right? The people who think it's dumb to spend this money on, you know, anything that's not a defense department need, you know, or that kind of idea, right? Like, you know, they, okay. they really don't want to see money going to cultural support. Um, and so I think every, you know, at a certain level, every year it's a debate. Also because the Smithsonian is so publicly popular, they're probably never going to really slam it. But yeah. what does happen is it grows faster than the appropriations can support. And so it is, always running at a kind of deficit basically and that was like a big thing through a big chunk of its history again we talk about that later was this sort of deficit mindset that they just always had to use like they basically never had enough money curators always had to realize that they had to like you know cut costs where they could and that sort of thing so um but so when was it officially created as an institution. So um, August 10th, I believe it was 1846 was when the the result of all this debate. So there was about a decade's worth of Congress saying, no, we should build a university. Like, you know, there was all this back and forth that kept happening and it would kind of pop up and fade away as people God tried bless to advocate. Congress. Okay, okay, wait, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. I'm going to defend Congress in this, for sure, which I rarely do, because usually my approval of con my approval rating of Congress is is usually about of my approval rating of the flu, but but in this particular instance, they were given an endowment that said for the diffusion of knowledge, right, like that's like saying I'm gonna give you an endowment for you know space. Like, what does that mean? That's right. Not, so I, I appreciate Congress wanting to fight about that because it's not a small amount of money. It is not a small investment. So right. if you're going to well, do something- Well, in, in, in moreover, Nia- Diffusion of knowledge could be a university. That makes sense, right? Like, Well, to your point, Nia, uh, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, in the history of the Smithsonian, there has been- a, a debate about what should be its overarching purpose, right? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, because on one hand, for many of us, I mean, much like you, I mean, as a kid, I did field trips to the Smithsonian. We weren't going there for the diffusion of knowledge. We were looking at the cool artifacts, right? And okay. So on one hand, cream. is it a museum or is the purpose to go ahead and do worthwhile research, right? right? Right. And that that tension actually, so, you know, and it makes sense, right? The phrase was the increase and diffusion 
of knowledge increase kind of research method, you know, the research purpose, right? The increase yeah. of knowledge. Diffusion is sort of the public facing purpose. And that had all, I mean, like really from the very beginning, from before they even said it, exactly as you said, Nia, they were trying to figure out what that means. And so a university was proposed, a national library was proposed, <gasps> um, which again made a ton of sense. I mean, yes, there was a Library of Congress, but of course it was seen as like the library for Congress. <laughs> right. It was not the public lie, you know, sort of that it has become. That it has become. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the great phrases was, I guess there was a, a university college professor who wanted a kind of a postgraduate university for, you know, with this money. And John Quincy Adams hated that and said, as <laughs> I had to look over to see um it his his critique of the guy was that his very breath is pestilential you know <gasps> for suggesting this terrible idea of a university because there was this whole sense of like you know we can't use this money to educate like to educate our children to educate people or to you know either cuz another idea was more like a teacher preparatory kind of you know the idea teach the teachers right and again it all makes sense none of it is you know, really outre, but then there was, you know, what they ended up with. So in, in 1846 was taking some of these ideas and proposing kind of a combination museum, lecture area, um, laboratories kind of, kind of idea. But even then, once they articulated that in the, in the founding, you know, um, um, the congressional act that found it, so they didn't, um, what was I just about to say with that? Um, oh, they, they, they still, of course, didn't really know what it was gonna look like. So it was really the first secretary, Joseph Henry, who gave it shape in the end as to what exactly the Smithsonian, like he rolled out with a plan for, you know, okay, this is what the Smithsonian's gonna end up doing now that we have it. Um, well, one of the other things he was, had a vision. So yeah, he, he had a vision. It did not particularly include a building, which is part of like, he didn't want to use this money for a building because he's like, all that's going to do is eat up this money, right? Like if we uh. if we have this money, um, nor did he particularly want a library. I guess I, I may not have mentioned that. That was one of the elements was not, you know, the library, but a library, like a national library. And they had decided that every, you know, so as happens now with Library of Congress, right? Like everything that gets copyrighted in the U.S., a copy of it shall be deposited at the Smithsonian Library and at the Library of Congress. Like that was part of this this sort of thing. Um, and after sort of the first decade of the Smithsonian's existence, Henry, who never liked the idea of the library, nor did he like the librarian that was hired, <laughs> um, managed basically to get the librarian fired and that library got moved to the Library of Congress as the Smithsonian Library at the Library of Congress. And so he's like, best of both worlds, we get the credit and we're, you know, but we don't have to take care of this library anymore. Um, one of the, you know, so what did happen with this money in part was of course the establishment of the institution um, and how it's managed through a board of regents and that sort of idea you know, and money set aside for a building, which he did particularly want, but he recognized that it sort of needed to happen. And so that building ended up becoming the Smithsonian Castle, which we've talked about a little bit, so. Um, Called the castle because of the turreted top, right? The, yes. Or the crenellated top. Right. 
What is, is in formally, the castle? It is formally, I think, the Smithsonian Institution building, but ah. <laughs> but nicknamed the castle because it is sort of Norman in its design. And what's funny is that the founding legislation talks about, you know, a building made of plain materials without much ornamentation. I mean, this kind of sense. And I was like, and they ended up with a castle. I mean, it's not a complicated <laughs> castle. It's not very ornate, but it's it's still a castle, um, which was a totally impractical for Joseph Henry's purposes and impractical space. He did have living quarters there, his family, like he lived in the castle. Um, what basically ended up happening was in all these towers of the castle, which weren't good for labs or research or display lectures, anything like that. They did house scientists. So there were people who were living in the castle. I mean, Joseph Henry had like his family's wing kind of idea. And then they would just house scientists kind of all around the castle, which led in the mid 19th century to like my favorite group of Smithsonian people, but we can talk about that later on, the Megatherium Club. <gasps> which I want to be a member of because that's an awesome name. It's a great name. So what's in the castle? The castle now is the administration part, isn't it? Isn't it, it is sort of like the... The big thing that's there now, I mean, the, the there is administrative offices, but also now the visitor center, like finally, like it okay. is now re relatively recently become the like, come here first, you know, learn about all the Smithsonian museums, figure out what you want to do. They have exhibits kind of from all the museums, like, you know, just little teaser exhibits <laughs> in there to let One people know. ruby slipper. Right, and, exactly. You, no, I'm kidding. Can you find <laughs> the other one? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my, my, like, the memories that I have of the Smithsonian, right? Uh, of a lot of the television stuff, Archie Bunker's chair and, and then the movie stuff. And a few years ago, the American flag. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Which yeah. is stunning. Yeah. And it's being re, it's being, um, uh, I don't it's not yeah. refurbished that's the right. wrong it's word sort of, but you know, renovated is too it, strong a word too, yeah I don't know exactly what how, but I mean it's, it's being, being preserved. preserved and it's yeah. amazing like it's yeah. an amazing sort of breathtaking you step in and you go whoa okay that's yeah. really old yeah. and really cool which is what happens with a lot of the exhibits at the Smithsonian right the Smithsonian right. is like if you've never listeners if you've never been to the first ladies gowns exhibit it's really interesting. Like, it's just an interesting walk through history of this is what these women had to wear in order to be the, the public face of, of, of the wife of the government, basically, right? right? Like, yeah, the first lady of the government. I mean, you know, that, that's how they're, you know, oftentimes described. But I mean, again, those kinds of materials, okay, don't age well unless they are preserved and protected. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, in, in part, that's the diffusion of knowledge, right, Eric? I mean, right. you know, you have these displays in part that go ahead. I mean, and again, it's kind of sort of like our discussion with uh, uh, Christy Artello about, um, you know, art, right? I mean, one of the values or purposes of art is to go ahead and show okay, how things have changed. What was important in a particular period of time? Why did they start viewing things this way and depict them this way, right? right. So when you go to the Smithsonian and you see that kind of display, you're just like, 
wow, they forced women to wear this, okay? And they were supposed to go ahead and look. And smile. And they're supposed to smile while they're wearing that. Like, it's one thing to make me wear it. It's another thing to make me enjoy it. Right, Um, right. Or Julia Child's Kitchen. Like, that is enormous touchstone thing for women taking on an entirely different kind of cooking right and yeah. then you you follow on with that exhibit and you realize she's also a spy right so it's this whole <laughs> empowerment thing that's very different and can there's a lot of things that are like that in to my mind in the smithsonian which are they start off as a, as one thing but then as you explore more right you you find the layers and the depths and the, and all of a sudden you're like whoa this is crazy right um but i hate to stop us here but we need to stop here for a minute and come back if we can for another episode to finish up because oh, i'd love to okay yeah, so I mean, I, I think Eric, uh, we would like for you to come back and discuss how the Smithsonian um, expanded and grew. Um, um, its value and purposes perhaps have changed. Maybe some of the controversies, because um, as many of us who have followed the Smithsonian can note, there have been some controversies about <laughs> some of the displays. Okay. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, that'd be great. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're willing to come back for, uh, for a second episode? To. Okay. Happy great. To. Fabulous. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Nia. Thank you. You've been listening to Civil Discourse. Brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.